the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for first and foremost being such a perfect, righteous, holy, loving dad to everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, as we celebrate Father's Day, we are palpably aware of um, amazing fathers and absent fathers and everything in between. And just like Mother's Day, it is an emotional day for so many, but we stand here today and we say, you objectively are the perfect father. You are good and you love us. You are gracious to us. You have been everything we have ever needed and more. And so God, it is an absolute privilege that we have to be your sons and your daughters and to stand here together and to worship you and to lift high the name of Jesus Christ, your son. It is our privilege to know your word, to hear your word, to ruminate on it, to pray together, to eat together, to eat bacon together because of Jesus Christ and the new covenant. And God, we are so grateful in Jesus' name. Amen, Village Church. Amen. You may be, you may be seated. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church. And uh, I do like to make a joke every year on Father's Day where I say, if you are Jewish and you've yet to trust in Jesus Christ, come to him because the promise of the new covenant is that the law is gone and pigs are free to eat and that means bacon. So on Father's Day, we have um, between the services unending amounts of bacon, more than you'll ever, ever know what to do with in your entire life. There are years where um, some people come and they are just getting plates and plates of it, putting it in their purses. Part of me wants to be like, no, don't do that. You're stealing from other people who want to eat bacon. But um, I totally get it because it's, it's delicious. One of my favorite Sundays of the year. Um, before we get into our text this morning, um, I have one really exciting announcement for you all. Um, there's, a, there's like a, a couple question marks hanging over the community of Village Church that you all are maybe trying to like wonder when's it going to happen. One is the Constitution, of which I'm almost ready to give you an update, but not yet. The other is our parking lot. And I want to just give you um, a time frame on what's happening. We've signed a contract. We are ready to go. In August, they're going to be literally ripping up every single part <clears throat> of our parking lot <clears throat> and um, rebuilding it from the ground up, expanding it, et cetera, all this stuff. And uh, we're going to zero debt to do it because of your absolute amazing generosity. And uh, so August is when it's going to happen. Now, before you plot, wait, 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 you're going to say, uh, but I thought it was going to be done in May. And all of the asphalt companies are actually moved back for six or eight weeks because of the, uh, the weather this spring. You remember how crazy it was? Everything is kind of pushed back. So we are on the list. August, that's the goal. Um, only thing that could hold that up is weather. It's not money. It's not contract signed or any of the above. And so no longer shall we be the church who looks like it closed down Kmart because of the parking lot. Now you can applaud. There we go. All right. So when I became lead pastor, uh, actually in the interim, uh, 2008-9, my first question was like, we need to do the parking lot. And they're like, yeah, we do. And that was, that was a decade ago. <laughs> and so... 
Anyways, we, we saw it fit to spend money in other places, and, and uh, so very, very grateful and genuinely um, to be able to do this and have zero debt currently and zero debt uh, by the time we're done with this is um, an absolute privilege. So um, if you are new here, you're sitting next to some of the most generous, amazing people. Um, that Everything that we do here costs money, everything, lights, everything, and you are sitting next to some of the most amazing people um, who give um, above and beyond amazingly. Um, turn with me to Genesis chapter 9, verse 24. We're in a series on Genesis 1 through 11, and we're, we're almost done. We're just a couple weeks out. And um, uh, we're going to be primarily in Genesis chapter 10, but we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Genesis chapter 9. And, and as we start, um, uh, this is one of those great joys. We're actually on Father's Day. It's a message in the text we're preaching in through scripture that really is actually significantly about dads. So um, I didn't actually pick to give a Father's Day message. It's literally in the text, which I just absolutely um, love. And so I want to talk about dads just for a moment to kind of set up where this text is going and what's happening here. Um, a father's role um, is at least three things. Number one, it's prophetic. Number two, it's predictive. Number three, it is powerful. Um, I want to talk about each of these. Number one, prophetic. I don't, I don't mean in the charismatic spiritual gift sense of the word. Um, here's what I mean it in. Uh, I mean it like this. Um, we search and we find and we pray over God's will for our children. We look at their hearts. We look at their gifts. We look at the way God's made them. And you can start to put pieces together uh, in your children about how God has wired them and what their calling might be. And then we, we, along with discovering and praying for and searching out and spending time with our kids and helping them serve and grow, we help them discover who God has made them to be. And sometimes, sometimes at like a young age, moms and dads, you get this vision into who God is making them to be. And you can speak this into their life. It's actually one of the most powerful things a father will ever do is speak vision into the heart and into the mind of a son or daughter. Every child, I don't care who you are, you want your dad to look at you and say, this is who you are. This is who God says you are, and this is how I see God growing you. It's one of the most powerful, beautiful things. But on a dad's end, to, to be able to get clarity to this, it takes time. It takes prayer. I pray for my kids. God, who are you making them to be? And I want to come alongside of what God is doing and speak that vision into their life. Number two, it's predictive. Um, our children will accelerate our unrighteousness or our righteousness, oftentimes both. You guys know what I'm saying, right? Like you ever look at your children and maybe you think to yourself, they're the worst of me or they're the best of me or they're the worst of me and the best of me. Do you ever see that? Uh, and it's predictive. So um, this isn't because I'm like unusually intelligent, but, it, but if I get enough time with a family, um, I can look at a father and tell you some of the main themes and struggles and victories of the sons and daughters' lives who live under the leadership of that father. I can tell you that whether they trust Christ or not, there are going to be some big meta struggles in their life just by looking at the dad, just by looking at the way he lives his life, models his life, etc. It's one of the most powerful, amazing influences you're ever going to have. It's predictive. And so the way you live your life actually has a profound influence because by osmosis, they're just taking in everything you do. Um, we were playing, this is a small little example. We have a Village Church softball league. And I, I, one Sunday, I told you that we won. That was our first game. We've lost every single game, every, every, the two softball leagues 
things. We lost them all. We're terrible. Um, this past week, we won again by the hair of our chinny-chin-chin. Like, it was, it was amazing. It was victorious. But um, Pastor Tim plays, and his son plays. And uh, Tim's wife, Renee, was telling me, it's interesting because when they get to first play, base, they don't even know they do it. They take their hat, and they move it backward, and they have the same stance. Now, now, Tim never taught Justin this, right? They just by us. Oh, there you are. Hey, Renee. Uh, just by osmosis takes this in. And if even just little habits and patterns, that is what is brought into the soul and the mind of a son or a daughter by osmosis, how much more your lifestyle, your words, your patterns, how you handle your attitude, everything. It's predictive. I can tell you the major, major themes and victories of your son and your daughter's life just by spending enough time with the dad. It's not because I'm smart. It's because we see it every day all the time, over and over again. Number three, it's powerful. It's powerful. Dads, you are, no offense moms, the most powerful influence next to God in your son's and your daughter's life. And I want you to consider this. This is something that probably over the last year has hit me in a way that it never has. Thousands of generations will come after me if Jesus does not come back. Thousands, hundreds, Let's just give, let's give God the benefit of the doubt. He's coming back in the next 200 years, 10 generations, which is hundreds, thousands, or hundreds of thousands of people are going to come from me. That's insanity. That is an incredible amount of influence. And every decision I make, though it be, the ripple becomes smaller and smaller, the farther and farther away it gets from the source, every decision I make ripples. My decision to have integrity my decision to kill lust in all of its forms wherever I find it, my decision to not steal, my decision to do my taxes, my decision to love my wife, my decision to not be a workaholic, my decision to all these decisions that I'm trying to make in my life ripple. And they ripple not just from my kids, but they ripple from generation to generation. Every single man is a fork in the road. You are a fork in the road. And after you will come generations and generations and thousands and thousands of people. And this is a powerful, powerful role. No pressure. But I want want to just tell you something. This is why I love Jesus. With Jesus, generational trajectories turn on a dime. Isn't that amazing? How many of you, this is your story, right? You can look back at your heritage and generation after generation after generation. And then Jesus saved you. And then it all changes. Isn't that amazing? With Jesus, generational trajectories, they turn on a dime. All the generational struggles, all of the sin patterns that got brought down from your great-grandfather to your grandfather to your father, and now to you, guess what? They can die with you. Like that, that is, I know my mom and dad were the first generation in their family to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And my goal is to kill all of that residue of generational struggle that still made its way into my life. And it's not going to get all killed. I'm confident I'm still going to bring a ton of it to my kids. And my prayer for them is that they kill even more. And that generation after generation, we turn the ship on the fueling legacy. And that's my dream for us. But I'm telling you that this is possible only through Jesus Christ. And some of you, you look at your lives, you look at your fathers and your grandfathers, and you're like, I don't know how to actually change the trajectory. And it will never change until Jesus Christ intervenes in your life and you change it. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 9. There's a couple things you need to know about Genesis 9 and 10. Number one. Genesis 9 um, ends with the story of Noah and his family, but it's setting up our context for Genesis 10. And guess what Genesis 10 is? Your favorite genre of literature, genealogy. Like, right? I know you just love it, right? I, I will say, um, all my cards on the table, uh, I learned more this week 
in this sermon than I have learned in a very long time. I'm giving you about 10%, the tip of the iceberg, like sometime privately, uh, if you wanna have coffee with me, I'll tell you a bunch of other things that I learned um, from this, but this is a, a really incredible, incredible genealogy. But this is a different genealogy. The vast majority of genealogies are vertical, which means their primary concern is father to son to son to son to son. And don't get me wrong, this genealogy is gonna deal vertically, but it has a larger agenda to it. And the larger agenda is this, that the person who penned this genealogy, which um, the context of this actually lets us know that this was penned hundreds and hundreds of years before Moses. Um, This was actually penned by a human being way before Moses. Moses had this documentation, and and here's what we know. They are concerned with answering the following question. How did the world get like it is today? Why are these people over here, and why are these people over here? Like, How did the world geopolitically get to the place where it's at. And so this is a genealogy um, that helps us understand why the world is the way it is. So I want to put a map up for you. Um, This is just kind of a a big map that gives you a big picture of how it's happening. You have Noah. He has three sons, Japheth, Shem, and Ham in honor of Bacon Sunday. And so... (laughs) You're going you're to find that each of these kids dispersed. They went to three different areas, generally speaking, of the world. And you find, if you could, generally speaking, that Japheth went to the north. The Indo-Europeans, Caucasians, came out of that bloodline. You're going to find Shem. Um, Shem is where we get the word um, Semite from, the Jewish people, Arabic people, etc. So if you could break it down, you have Indo-Europeans, you have Shem. And then at the bottom, you're going to have Ham, which is going to fill Africa and a whole bunch of other stuff around here, which we're going to develop. The Canaanites, they came from Ham. We're going to look at some of the powerful implications, um, not just geopolitically, but spiritually. And this is, I think, going to help you wrap your mind around um, what's happening in Scripture. Uh, Point number one in your notes, if you would open up, uh, a father's curse. So before we get to Genesis 10, let's look at 9.24, Genesis chapter 9, verse 24. We're going to carry on where we left off last Sunday. You guys remember the story? Noah got drunk as a skunk, passes out, buck naked, Ham finds him, exploits his sin, um, tries to tell his brothers to publicly mock him and shame him. Ham is evil. The brothers come in. They do not witness their father's nakedness, and they cover his sin. They don't cover up his sin, but they cover his sin. Verse 24 says this. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Here's what you need. You need to know about Ham. Ham was a terrible person from the inside out. The flow, the narrative of Genesis 1 through 11 wants to build a case from you that that Ham is not a good good guy. Um, He's very broken. The evil of the pre-flood world was in his bones and in his blood. His father saves his life by his own righteousness, and he hates him for it. He shames him for it. He mocks him for it. Without, Without Noah, Ham is utterly dead. Verse 25. He, Noah, said... Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Did you know, let's just look at this, the curse was aimed at Canaan, Ham's son. Uh, Ham doesn't even get the curse. I don't know if you realize this. The son does. The son does. Uh, I imagine Noah looks at Ham and he says this. Look at who you are. And your children are even worse. And of your four, Canaan is the worst of the worst. Because of you, this child 
is cursed. Here's what one author said. I love this. No one knew that Ham's tolerance of perversion, his delight in it, would break out in an intensified form in at least one of his children. Thus, guided by divine wisdom, he unerringly selects the one boy of Ham's four sons in whom this perversion will find outlet and expression. So the, cursed, the curse is pronounced upon Canaan. We're gonna see this, that the worst of the worst of the worst of post-flood debauchery and evil amongst humanity came from Canaan's sons, the Canaanites. You're gonna find this. And we're gonna, we're gonna unravel some of this. You're gonna find that child sacrifice, mass murder, vile acts of rape um, are just the tip of the iceberg of what was the norm for the Canaanites and all of the different expression of Canaanites. Um, and we're gonna find very quickly um, that this group of people was worthy of only one thing from God and that one thing is extinction. Um, this has been a, a challenge, a question from non-Christians, from secular Christians, who, who, who are secular Christians, uh, uh, liberal Christians who read the Bible and they point a finger at God. There's no such thing as a secular Christian, I don't think, but they point their finger at God and they say, um, look, the God of the Bible commits mass genocide. The God of the Bible is unreliable and untrustworthy. Well, that's adorable if the people are good. Uh, that's adorable if the five-year-old sons aren't engaged in the kind of de defiling and vile acts that we're, we're talking about here. Okay? Th this is a group of people. These are small tribes that are more vile than anything you could possibly imagine. If you walked into their tribe, you would be sexually violated and dead within 10 minutes. That's how vile these people are. This, this is not just your normal group of people. This isn't just like an ethnic group that's like, oh, it's just a good group of people. Oh, look, a seven-year-old kid. There are some evil seven-year-old kids, but you find me a Jebusite seven-year-old kid, I'm gonna show you the pinnacle of evil. Um, number two, this is so pathetic and so sad, and you need to know it's real. This singular text was the Christian justification for slavery. Uh, the idea here is that a servant of servants shall be, he be to his brothers. And one of the things you did see is that the descendants of Ham did go to Africa, but it's interesting, it is not the Canaanites who were black-skinned. It was the Cushites. It was a completely different group of people. And the word Cush means black. They went to Ethiopia, they landed there, and what we call Cush in scripture is actually just modern-day Ethiopia. It's a very interesting, sad misinterpretation of this text. And unfortunately, those tasked with executing justice, Christians, Christian leaders for generations, use this absolute perverse, gross misunderstanding to justify the slave trade. That's actually how they went back to it. It's amazing, when you wanna justify your evil acts, you go to scripture and you twist and contort things to make it say what you want. We'll talk about that more toward the end of the sermon. Let's step back. I wanna show you three big insights from Ham's clans. That almost rhymes. Number one. The Hamites were a constant enemy of God's people. Let's just, just take this in. The, these are the groups of people that just come from Ham. Canaanites, Babylites, Egyptians, Cushites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Assyrians, Sodomites, Gomorites, Ninevites, Philistines. You go down the line, every enemy of God's people comes from the line of Ham. It's actually pretty profound. When the Jews came into the Promised Land, who was in the promised land? The Canaanites. All these different tribes from Canaan, the most evil of the brothers, the cursed brother, they're all in there. 
And one of the things that God did is he sent his people in there and he said, eradicate them. Um, they, it's, just, it's just how it is. There's no getting around it. I don't want to even make it sound better than it is. It's one of those difficult things that you have to face. And when you understand their atrocity and their evil, um, you understand that for the good of humanity, they needed to be dealt with. If they were not dealt with, God only knows what would be going on in the world today. And the Canaanites, these were the descendants of Ham. Number two, the Hamites were notoriously rebellious against God notoriously rebellious against God. Um, you just look at this picture and you see all of these words in blue. And if you know scripture in any way, you know that the words in blue, these are not great people, right? Uh, they're not just hating God's people. They are internally rebellious against God. I, I want to show you um, one of the Hamites. His name is Nimrod. Um, let's look at Nimrod for a minute. And Nimrod is in Genesis chapter 5, verse 8. And it says this, that Cush, father, go to the next slide, please. Cush fathered Nimrod. What's interesting is that Nimrod um, becomes basically the first world dictator. This guy is unbelievably intelligent and powerful. And it's actually interesting. Notice that he's not the slave, but he is the king. He is an emperor. He is strong. He is powerful. And where is he from? Cush, which means black. So the first emperor of the world was an African-American, if you will. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man, and this is always connected to warfare, by the way. It's a respected, powerful uh, man who is uh, especially powerful in battle. He was also a mighty hunter before the Lord. Um, therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So it's interesting that even Babel, this great place of rebellion against God, came from the descendants of Ham. Eric, Akkad, Kalanan, the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and he built Nineveh. I'm sorry, if you build one great city, um, you're pretty amazing. You build two enormous world-changing centers of civilization, um, there's obviously some kind of building gift that you have. Uh, there's even another one, a city that we don't know much about, Kala, that is, that is the great city. He was an incredibly successful leader and builder, number one. Number two, he was the first world leader, emperor, some would say dictator, because that's the only way someone could lead in this time and this place. But it's interesting that the name Nimrod means this, we shall rebel. And if you take this, this quote in verse nine, um, we shall rebel, Nimrod, like a mighty hunter before the Lord. Um, some people have said, and I think this is actually a really accurate understanding in the Hebrew, that what this is saying about him is that his entire posture of life was to rebel against the Lord and to build an empire for himself as an act of rebellion against God. Number three, here's what you need to know about the Hamites. They brought the greatest technological advancements in human history. Um, this group of people were some of the most intelligent, and they blessed humanity in ways that we can barely even begin to understand. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Mayans, the Aztecs, all Asians, Native Americans. The list actually goes on and on and on. Some of the greatest technological advancements in human history were birthed by the Hamites. Three questions I want to answer for you. Number one, what is a curse in Scripture? You ever wondered that, like, can, can I like put a curse on you, <laughs> right? Or like some demonic spirits that will come and oppress your life and make it really hard, you know, can I, can I do that to you? Very simply, um, here's what it means to curse someone. Not to curse somebody with a swear word, but, but to curse them. Number one, it means to not have God's blessing. If you're cursed, it means that God has withheld his blessing from you. Um, and so that, that's one sense of the word. The other is this. It's not just to have something 
um, held back. It's to be given over, to be given over to sin and judgment. And so if you're cursed, right, um, this could mean that God has just given you over to sin and judgment. Finally, it could mean not just God not supporting you, but it could mean God just actively opposing you, God going against you, God being fully against you. And generally speaking, what Noah is saying to Ham is this. Um, God's presence will never be with you. Um, God will never support you. Your people will be given over Canaan and through his line, over to sin and ultimately judgment. And finally, here's what you're going to find. At the right time, God will actively oppose you. And when the Israelites come into your land and you pray to all of your gods to save you, the one true God will oppose you and will have them exterminate you. Second question. What was the effect of Noah's curse? Uh, We've already seen this to a degree, but the Canaanites were the most evil people post-flood that you can imagine. And God legitimately, literally just gave them over to their sin. They experienced the amplifying effect of sin from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. They eventually, eventually landed in the promised land only to be taken over and judged by Shem's people, the Israelites. Here's a question. Can a father still curse their sons today. Don't you want to get to the blessing part, by the way? Like, it's like, get over there, Michael. I get it. We're almost done. Um, in, the, in the sense that Americans use the language, um, no. Uh, I'm not going to call on the spirits to oppress them. I don't know that that's, that's how things work, right? Um, and what kind of father are you if you actually put a curse like that on your son? Um, but here's what we do know that the curse of sin is in everyone. And a father has a profound capacity to take that sin and struggle resident in their sons and daughters and to amplify it by rebellion against God. That's just a, that's a hard reality. You're not putting a new curse on them per se, but that curse of sin that is inside of them, we have this incredible ability to amplify it. But But what I love, I want to come back to this, because even as we talk about curses, we live on this side of the cross, and that every sin and struggle and generational tendency and trajectory that has been handed down to you, you have the capacity through faith in Jesus Christ to kill it once and for all. Is it going to take a lot of hard work? You better believe it. When something is so deep, deeply ingrained inside of you, to remove it, to extract it, to kill it is not easy. It's a, an insidious weed, but through faith in Jesus Christ, it is able to be uprooted. Now, number two in your notes, the Father's blessing. Noah did not just have insight um, from his kid's character, but revelation from God as to their role in the world. Um, it's amazing the, the, the wisdom and the knowledge that God gave Noah, and it was not lost on Noah. I don't think, there's no way it could be lost on him that every human who exists from this point on is going to be related to him. Like if the world goes crazy, somehow, to a degree, it's, it's on him. And uh, the future of humanity rests on these boys And he knows the heart of Ham. He knows the evil of Ham, but he sees the righteousness of Japheth and Shem. And he's just, he's hoping, I'm sure he's praying that Japheth and Shem, their their clans grow exponentially. Um, But when a father sees a calling or a virtue or character in a son or daughter, he blesses it. 
Um, to bless it doesn't mean just to like approve. Uh, it doesn't mean to say, yeah, that's good. It means to come alongside of this person who has this virtue, who has this calling, who has this character, and to communicate to them that you're all in and for developing this. Um, this, is your, this is your prayer. This is your desire. God is in favor of this. It's, it's almost your way of saying, if you will continue to develop this, God will be for you, I will be for you, and we will bless this. We will see this thing that is in there. We will see it come to life and grow exponentially. Uh, this is something scriptures and I think personal experience affirm, the, that virtue which a father blesses in a child of God amplifies. That virtue which a child, that, that a father affirms, calls out, and supports actively amplifies. There are few words more powerful than a dad sitting down with a son or daughter and saying this. I love this about you. God loves this about you. And Keep this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest in this. I'll tell you, um, I have three kids, and um, my kids are young, nine, seven, and five. And so for my nine and seven-year-old, um, there's one word for them that God has like, just really imprinted on my soul. I've shared this with some of you before. Um, my nine-year-old, um, she is created uh, to walk into an environment and just make it beautiful. Um, you could just see it. From the time she was young, all she wanted to do was make things more beautiful. And so um, one of the things that I've said to her since she was about four or five years old is, Elle, um, this world can get really ugly. But when God designed you, he made you to bring beauty into this world. And, and this is a blessing that I give to her. It's, it, we talk about beauty in relationships. We talk about beauty on walls. We talk about beauty in decor. We talk about beauty in love for each other and what is beautiful to God. And, and so her job is to enter into atmospheres and cultures and environments and take things that aren't beautiful and make them beautiful to God. Uh, my seven-year-old, um, she is one of the happiest humans I know. And uh, I looked at her. And I realized at a very young age, I said, V, God has made you to bring joy into this world. There's so much sadness. There's so much sadness in this world. And you're given this really special gift by God that you walk into these environments and you are to bring joy to people. And not just laughter at the sake of you being an idiot. I mean, real genuine joy. God has wired you for something. And these are powerful words in my kid's life. I have a five-year-old son. I don't know his word yet. I've been praying that God would just give me maybe just a grand theme. And, and you know what? My kids can do anything they want with, with, with these ideas. They can go into ministry. They can get any job in the world. It doesn't control them. It doesn't uh, minimize their opportunities. What it does is it shows them that, that God has made them very special for something. And I'm telling you, when a father speaks words of blessing and then cultivates that and calls that out as good and affirms them that, it has a powerful way of amplifying what is already inside of them. Verse 26, he also said, Noah, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. This is his way of, of blessing Shem. We're gonna watch how this pans out. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. The word Japheth actually means just to enlarge. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his ser servant. Let's look at Japheth. Again, Japheth means to uh, enlarge. And so it seems to me that Noah is probably optimistic that Japheth's clan is going to get bigger and bigger. If you are Indo-Caucasian, white, generally speaking, European in heritage, um, generally speaking, this seems to be the place where the descendants of Japheth um, came from or where he went to. Um, one of the things that I love about, about this, right, it, it's very interesting. It says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. What's interesting is that Japheth's blessing is contingent on him being under the leadership 
of Shem. And we're gonna see why this is really, really important. Uh, Genesis chapter 10, verse two says this, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, the list goes on. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands. And this is the text way of showing you the geopolitical focus because the question that the author of this is trying to answer is, why are different people where they're at? Now let's go to Shem. From Shem come the Semitic people. Um, even in these, these just few verses, uh, 21, 22, and 23, there's a lot here that you may miss. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. Eber is, is the root word for the Hebrews. All of the Hebrew people, all of them come from Eber who comes from Shem. And then you get down to uh, the bottom of verse 23, the sons of Aram, the sons of uh, the sons, uh, Uz, that's the important word here. Who, who in scripture, pop quiz, million dollars if you get it. Who's from Uz or Uz? Yeah, and? Job. that interesting? And so what you're finding here is that there's something really, really special about this lineage. And um, uh, we're going to find actually in scripture that the rest of the Bible picks up the line of Shem. All right, we've dealt with Japheth, we've dealt with Ham, and the rest of the Bible, the heroes, the main focus is going to be on the line of Shem all the way up into the point of Jesus Christ. And what you find here is that God is going to fight for the line of Shem. Uh, God is going to defend the line of Shem. God is going to discipline the line of Shem. But God is going to remain faithful, covenantally faithful to this line. And he wants to bless them. So what? I have 37 so what's, so buckle up. Just kidding. You step back from all of this. There is one grand conclusion that if you miss... You're blind as a bat. We are all one people. Every human being. One race, one species, one common ancestor. That, by the way, is a new thought for some people in this room. The, the root of all racism comes down to missing the fact that we are legitimately equal in value despite your skin color, despite your culture, despite your heritage, despite whether you're from Ham, Japheth, or Shem. Which brings me to point number two, and I hope you see this, I hope you know this, which just means racism is completely and utterly foolish and stupid. It's illogical, it's offensive to God, it is unbiblical, it completely and totally and utterly misses the point about what a human being is. It's just utterly stupid. Uh, I think it's fair to say not all cultures are created equal. Um, you may think yours is the best. I'm just telling you it's probably not. <laughs> um, not all nations are built equally. Not all nations are equally as awesome. They're not. You know that. You see that. But it doesn't matter what nation or what culture you come from. Every human being is equally made in the image of God. The fact that it needs to be continually said is, is on one hand sad. On the other hand, what a privilege it is for us to stand and say, no. Like, that's unacceptable no matter where you find it. I don't care if you're from Ham. I don't care if you're from Japheth. I don't care if you're from Shem. And it's interesting, globally, racism goes in every single direction, does it not? If you're from the line of Shem, half, half the people in the world want to kill you, right? If you're from the line of Ham, half the people in the world don't want you there. If you're from the line of Japheth, right? I mean, you get, the, you get the point. Like, it doesn't matter who you are at some point globally. Like, this is a mass huge issue. And the Christians need to just be able to step back and, and, and objectively say this. It's stupid. Wherever you find it, it is illogical, and we'll have no, no part in that whatsoever. Number three, geopolitically, I think this is important too. God determines boundaries and habitations. 
We read at the beginning from Acts 17. I'm going to read it again. From one man, every nation of mankind to live in the face of the earth he made. And you know, it's interesting because people have debated who this one man is. I think the one man is Noah, not Adam. Uh, Because he's referencing here in the context of this, it seems to be the Noahic story. And he comes back and he says, listen, everybody, all of us, you come from one human being. But there are multiple clans and families. And those clans and families are dispersed throughout the earth. Okay, And that's very important here. But here's what you need to know. God determines boundaries and habitations. This is so specific that God has determined allotted periods. You know what that means? That there is a period of time that people, nations, boundaries are able to exist. That God has predetermined in his mind how big America can be, when it can expand, and when it's going to be done. Like that's in the mind of God. He determines that. That's a powerful thought. That's a powerful thought. Not just the allotted periods, but the actual boundaries of their dwelling place where their boundaries actually begin and end. Uh, one of the things that this does for me is, is I look at the global stage right now and I think to myself, why are people so illogically mean to each other and racist? And then I look at the other side of things and say, why are Christians so, so anxious? I mean, uh, we do our part. We do the best we can. We engage in our political system with honor and integrity and faithfulness. And yet at the same time, like the scriptures are just yelling to us that we serve not a God who is aloof and sitting in heaven just twiddling his thumbs. I wonder what's going to happen with Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. But he knows with certainty And if anybody should watch the news with A, sadness, yes, but B, confidence that our God is absolutely amazing and that whatever happens on the geopolitical spectrum of our world, here's the big picture. God moves nations and dictators and emperors all around so that more people might come to Christ, which is the whole point of Acts 17. That's why. So if you see a nation fall or rise, here's what you can know. God is up to something, and then he's going to release the church to be the church, to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the descendants of Ham, to the descendants of Japheth, to the descendants of Shem, no matter where you find them. God's always up to something. And the Christian has to get outside of our immediate absolute worry that our status quo is going to be upset, and we need to get above that to say, who is God seeking to draw to himself because of these geopolitical moves, and who can we support, what missionaries should go out, what missionaries should we rise up, what people should be sent out? Those are some of the questions that the church needs to wrestle with before we get all worried that our taxes are going to go up. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to pay taxes, and I don't want to give the government any more money than I have to do. Can I get an amen on that one? Right? But that is not my greatest concern in the world. Right? Number one, the gospel. Number two, bacon Sunday. Number three, preaching a sermon to you. In that order. Number four, God will only make us one again through faith in Jesus Christ. Heaven is going to be a trip, and it is is not going to meet any of our expectations. It's going to blow them away. We all have ideas what it's going to be like, what it's not. Don't worry. I don't think we're going to sing for a billion years straight, okay? It's going to be all right. But through Jesus, God is bringing back what he dispersed. He dispersed humanity all over the world. Next week, it's going to blow your mind what happens linguistically around the world right now and what languages have in common, and we can root this back to Babel. It's crazy awesome. It's crazy awesome. That actually might be two weeks. We'll see. But God disperses, and in Jesus Christ is reuniting all the sons of Ham, all the sons of Shem, all the sons of Japheth, and nobody's more important. Nobody gets more prestige. Nobody's more valuable in this. We are one in Jesus Christ. I want to close with these two 
words from the New Testament. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Revelation 5, 9, 10, they sing a new song, saying, worthy are you. When you watch the international multi-ethnic flair of heaven, here's what you'll say with them. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they, all these different kinds of people, they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray together. Father, this story weaves together the realities of fatherhood and and parenting and sin and generational struggles and also at the same time your will and your intervention and your preservation and your plan. And, And God, it's amazing that all over the world these three sons spread and Lord, what you dispersed, now we have the joy in churches like this of as lopsided as we might be in suburban Bartlett um, to invite and love all people, to be one body with those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, to love your plan, to see the bigger picture. God, what a joy that we have. What, a, what an incredible privilege that we have as Christians represented even in this room are hundreds of nations of heritage bound together not primarily by the English language or by the city of Barlett or even the village church, but by Jesus. Only you could do that. God, as we walk out of here, we have to deal with our own lives and our own hearts. We, we see that all of this was rooted in a blessing and a curse from a dad. And so Lord, I pray that as we walk out of here, especially I pray for us us dads, would you help us lead and love our families to bless that which, whether our kids are 65 or 80 or eight or three, it's never too late to have a vision for who you have made our children to be. Would you just give us that? Would you give us the courage to draw that out, to call that out, to, to affirm it? God, we also, we also affirm we cannot control whether or not our kids trust in Christ or the decisions they make. And so God, I think there are some fathers here who you need to release from the responsibility of their children's decisions. Lord, some of the best dads in the entire world have kids who rebel against you. And so God, I pray that your Holy Spirit and your grace this Father's Day would encourage and would speak truth. Lord, I also confess that I personally bear on my soul far greater responsibility for my kids trusting in Jesus than I should. Lord, you are the grantor of faith. You are the opener of eyes. You are the giver. You are the saver. And so God, I pray that we would have tempered, realistic perspectives on this, but this Father's Day, you would give us grace to see and to know and to believe what is true. I pray for the kids of this church. What a blessing, what an awesome job 
our parents have, our pastors have, our community has, our community groups have to love on these kids, Awana, just a VBS and a pour into them. I pray, God, that the kids of Village Church would be different and distinct because of moms and dads who love them well and a church who loves them well and the gospel penetrating their hearts and you saving them. God, that is our desire. And so God, on this Father's Day, as we go out from all the nations and back and zoom in right in our own little hearts, um, encourage us, build us. Some of us, you need to convict us. Lord, you have this awesome way of convicting us and not totally crushing us. Thank you for that. And so Lord, I pray that we would be able to worship you now, partake of communion, leave this room, leave this place in truth, not in self-condemnation, but in truth, in repentance, but not self-condemnation. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that we are one in him through faith alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, Ville Church. Amen.